for your courage and your humility and bringing her up always. I'm I'm grateful that you do, and so I I hope everybody will make their prayers earnest um, for her. Any other any other prayers? Um, Melody, we we never we never do not have you on our prayers. You ought to know that by now. Sorry, Karen, go ahead. Our son, our older son, is now a firefighter in San Antonio, and we just like one to pray for safety for him. What's his name? Chris. Chris. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anybody else? Kay, how's your daughter doing? I I don't want to, but anybody else? I don't want to press anybody here, but. Please continue to keep our daughter, Denise, who is a, uh, who has a leukemia. She still has a uh, cancer in her bone marrow, so she's not quite ready for transplantation yet. So she is still on chemo, trying to eradicate all the cancers from her bone marrow before she can get the, to the uh, How about bone transplant. How about her son and daughter? They're doing fine. Yeah. Kay, I'm really sorry. To, um, I, I, you know that I live in a cave. I mean, I'm... but. Is that the condition for a, a bone transfer that your bones have to be absolutely purified before that can take place? I mean, I would have thought before that they would have made the transfer in order to replace everything that's cancerous, but that obviously isn't the case. Sounds like it has to be cancer-free before they can uh, put transplant bone marrow, healthy bone marrow. Well, yeah, yeah. Maybe. Uh, Dr. Bob knows. Maybe Dr. Bob knows, but that's our understanding. There's two Dr. Bobs online right now. Yeah, but you don't yeah, know. <laughs> no, I'm not going to give this up. I'm a doctor too. <laughs> Bob, come on. Do you, she, she's obvious. Do you want to comment on that, Bob? No, she's absolutely right. You have to totally get rid of the cancer before you can put new cells in because it won't matter. But why wouldn't they replace them? Can you explain that? What's the... You get you get a new bone marrow and you hope that it takes and you don't reject it. But that's the tricky part is getting rid of the cancer but not getting your immune system so low that you just can't totally fight infection. Oh, wow, wow. I think that's why her oncologist is going slowly. Yeah. It's almost like if they over-medicate like they did the first time, it causes the cancer to take a different form and come back fighting again. Wow. And wow. it's worse than going slow and easing your way onto the brakes rather than slamming on the brakes and going in a spin. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Wow. That's wow. All what we think happened. It's, it's a tough situation. It's a very tough situation. Yeah, I didn't know that. I mean, I gathered that from um, your words, all of you. Melody, we haven't seen you for a while, and I would be 
I don't want to press on you, dear heart, but we haven't seen you. Do you have any concerns in that heart of yours that we should? Um, I, w I would like to add my friend Mike to the prayer list. He is in the hospital right now. He has uh, infection of the sac around the heart, peri, I don't remember what it's called, but uh, they're treating him. And then uh, my... Um, my kids, um, they still need your prayers. Um, my daughter moves back from Kansas because her depression got to be so much. Yeah. So, uh, so she's living, so we've got two of our three kids living with us now. So I really need. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, Melody, what's your daughter's name? Caroline. Caroline? Yes. And your son? My son, Alex. Alex. Okay. Um, thank you all, honestly, for hu um, great humility. Just cannot thank you enough that we can share it with you, pick it up with you. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, um, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, um, the gift of yourself in the Mass, your presence with us through the days. We wouldn't be here, none of us would be here in this gathering if you weren't here. You, it's you that unites us. It's to you that we turn um, to express our thanksgiving and our griefs, our sorrows. I ask for a special grace on all of us. This is serious for me. Here at the beginning of Advent, you make clear to us that the answer to our sins is fasting and prayer. It's Advent. It's a little Lent. Strengthen us, please. I ask this in a special way. Help us all to take our fasting and our prayers more seriously than we do, particularly the fasting. Let us give up meals gladly for you. God, you took your divine nature and nailed it to a cross. Help us to take some joy in giving things up, food, because it, answering those appetites, those desires, help us to answer others. So strengthen us in our efforts at fasting this Advent. Help us to make it serious, to see that this is that time. We share with each other, the body of Christ, the mystical body. So help us to find a strength in our weaknesses that we don't do these things well, that we know that we pick them up together. Um, tears joy um, we find a strength in that so help us there please um, um, I ask for oh God let's see Mary um, Mike has carried his daughter he's a father God I'm going to ask for everybody's prayers here because I share them as a father too and I know those of you who are women do it as mothers too but um, watch over his son or I mean sorry his daughter um, um, I particularly think this is a hard time for women I think this century has done so much damage um, to push women to do things that I don't think are always altogether in their nature it's a hard hard time. So it's in some sense it's no wonder that young women are struggling. Where the hell do they go? What do they do? 
Um, things are so twisted. Be with that young woman, please. Help her to find a help, but more importantly, breathe into her some light. Help her to find a hope, a reason to see things that she may not have been seen all along, um, that she can come out of that. Let that be so for Melody's daughter. For Is it Corrine? Or Caroline. Caroline. Let it be so for Caroline, that young woman, too. Um, again, it's just a tough time. Um, women are more given to their emotions. Um, it's their gift and their curse. Um, it was the women at the cross, not, not the... Most of the men were gone. Emotions can be really troubling. They can mislead us all. Um, women are burdened with them. Help. Help those two daughters, please. Um, and I ask for a special blessing on um, Melody's son, Alex. Um, again, um, <laughs> if it's a difficult time for women, it's not going to be less difficult for men because we were meant to match up. Uh, one of my great laments in this time is, particularly with respect to abortion, where are the men? Where in the world are men today? Help that young man. Um, be with Chris um, um, and ease Karen and Bob's hearts. Help protect him. It's a tough season. He's got a dangerous job. Um, be with him, but more importantly, be with Karen. Um, be with Denise and her leukemia. Um, I ask for a special grace here. Um, I wasn't aware of this before. Help that cancer pass. Help that cancer pass. Um, so that she can know the gift of a transplant. Um, find a donor. Um, on top of all of these prayers for those that are carrying these, um, I ask for a special grace for all of those who asked. Oh, Mel Melody oh. asked for a friend. Oh, Mike. Yeah, from Watch Over Mike and um, be with him during any procedures he's going to have to undergo, undergo. Right now I'm asking for a grace for everybody who's carrying these. Karen, Bob, David, Kay, Michael, Melody. Um, Connie's not visually on screen. I know she's going to leave early, but even though you didn't ask her prayers, Connie, I know that you're carrying somebody in your heart. And for Suzanne and me, um, for the same burdens that we carry, um, help us all. This is Boethius. It's our faith. Um, whatever sorrows we carry, at the center of them should be some joy, some trust, that you are doing something. It's, it's by means of that that we grow in our faith, to trust in you in ways we don't see because we so often depend on our own powers. So help all of us to keep a joy, particularly now in Advent, as we do what we can to prepare for Christmas Day. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Yeah. Just so you know. Sorry? Just so you know.
You only have one tape recorder today. Oh, what happened? Memory is full. You have to download. Um, here. If you can all give me one second, a quick doc. Oh, it's it's not the good one anyway, doc. Um, okay. Here, I'm going to do it anyway. Sorry, you guys. If I can give me a minute, please. Suzanne just told me that the memory on this recorder is. This will just sorry. Just take a minute. Um. Um, delete. Okay, um, I want to continue with Elliot. Um, Melody, we've been doing Burton Norton and just going through section by section. I want to see if we can't cover. Wait, wait, here, before we do the, sorry, before we do the poem. A, a couple of practical things. Um, we're approaching. Christmas, we're in the middle of the busiest time of the year between Thanksgiving and, and New Year's is a tough time. Um, what I'd like to do is is um, commit to next week to see if we can't finish Lear. I'd rather do that than break it up because if we don't do anything until after Chris, Christmas or New Year's, it's going to be tough. Anne's not here. I miss... Oh, she told me. She told me. She and her husband are away. Um... So I'd like to plan to finish Lear. I, I hope I can do that. Um, but um, looking ahead, what I'd like to do, if it's okay with everybody, is cancel after next week, take a break. So that means the, the 20th, the week, the week of the 14th and 21st, the two weeks going into Christmas, we won't meet. That should ease your time some. Um, and which I would be glad to do for all of us, and plan to meet, oh wait, sorry, that's, just, sorry, that's the, the week of the 12th and 19th, sorry, in December. We will, we will, um, we will um, not meet then. Oh, Heather's back. Wow. Um, we won't meet then. Um, you. So we won't meet for the, the after time. next week. We, we meet next week for two weeks. We'll take off. Then we will take off um, after Christmas and and meet again on the fourth of fourth of January. Um, so we won't meet on the fourteenth or the twenty-first or the twenty-eighth. We will pick up again January 4th. I think that gives everybody a time to recover from any hangovers from New Year's. <laughs> and um, if that's not, any, that's not enough time and any of you, anybody's um, drinking that much, call me because I'll join you. Okay, <laughs> um, <laughs> I got a laugh out of you. I got a smile out of you. <laughs> Um, so we'll pick up, and um, here's our plans. When we pick up, um, we will do Pericles and Winter's Tale. I had planned to come back to you to ask you about the literature after that, because 
the next thing for me would be Moby Dick, which would be enormous for you guys. But we've been doing C.S. Lewis and Chesterton in St. Francis. We're, we're bringing a six or seven year work together to a close. We just did C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man and Chesterton's Orthodoxy. Chesterton's Orthodoxy is the, is the book that brought me into the Catholic Church. That's how much I think of it. To me, it's one of the most extraordinary books of the 20th century. But neither of them is fiction. They're both expository. They're, arg they're arguments. But they're in defense of something that goes to our faith. So what I'd like to do is take a break from the fiction and do those two works. Abolition of Man, C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, and G.K. Chesterton's Orthodoxy. I will send you um, um, additions, but you can get any you want. Because those works take us to our dogmas. The question we were wrestling with the last two weeks at St. Francis, and I want to put it to you guys because I'd really like you guys to think about this. Put somebody who's Islamic, Jewish, Christian, line them up. Put them next to each other. They're all going to look the same. They're all going to look human. Are they going to be the same in spirit? Each one of them has the law in common. The law is common to Islam, to Judaism, to Christianity. Christ does not, despite what the fundamentalist says, this is not just about love or faith. Christ himself said he didn't come to break the law or deny it. He came to fulfill it. We've gone over that again and again. That to me is so important for our age because in our age we're encouraged to love as if this compassion were enough to answer Christ. All three men have the law in common. What's the difference between them? I'm really, I'm, I don't want to answer this, but I want to put this out for you guys to think about it because I, I, I was a little bit surprised that people struggled with it. As we, had, we had to wrestle with this. If you take away the dogmas of Catholicism, because lots of people will say, what's the matter with you? Uh, Marx and most educated people following him today look at people who believe in religion as believing it in fear and superstition. That's Marx. People follow religion because they're afraid. They don't have the courage to go out on their own. So the big take on Christians today is get rid of them. You know that from our political scene. Anybody who's Christian is going to be looked at as bigoted. He's superstitious. He lives in an old world. Get rid of those things and get progressive and we'll all get along. So what's the matter with you Catholics? You're the ones who are the problems here. You believe in all these, these um, sacraments, these dogmas. Get rid of them and find out what's basic to our religions and we'll all get along. So my question to you, and I ask it very, very seriously, get rid of the dogmas. What would be the practical implications for our lives, the way we would live? And I'll just mention a couple. The Incarnation, the Trinity, the Resurrection, the Annunciation, the Virgin Birth, you know, transubstantiation. I mean, all they're all tied together. But those are the major ones. Take them away. Take any of those away. Um, because if they're not essential, there's no, there's no reason for us not to be Jewish, Islamic. So I'm asking a tough question because it's, it's going to mean 
being very clear about the differences between Catholicism, Christianity, and Judaism and Islam. Otherwise, there's no reason not to be Islamic or Jewish. Okay? So what I'd like to do after, um, after we finish Pericles and Wintersdale, which will be our work on Shakespeare, it'll complete our work in Shakespeare, I want to take a break from fiction and take up those two things because I'm feeling my age and I want to get to those things with you guys. And then when we're done, we, we, I, if those of you who want to go ahead, we will do Moby Dick, Scarlet Letter, Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov, some works of T.S. Eliot, Murder Cathedral, which is about martyrdom. It's Thomas Beckett's martyrdom. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary work. And some Faulkner, for anybody who's still standing. Some short stories. <laughs> yeah, and some short stories. Anyway, that would be, that's my proposal. So turn that over in your heads and see what you think about it, okay? Any questions about all of that? So just in practical terms, we, we'll finish up next week, take a Christmas break. We'll return on January 4th and do Pericles, Shakespeare's Pericles. My recommendation is you get the Folger copy again, or the Signet. The Folger, I think, is really good. And the Folger Winter's Tale. They're inexpensive. They're good notes. And, and then um, we will do C.S. Lewis and uh, Chesterton. Okay? Any questions about that? Where did where did she go? Where's she? Um, the teacher, Hillary. What's Stephen? Steph? No. Anyway. Heather. Yeah, Heather. Yeah. No questions. Hmm. Okay. Let's do T. S. Eliot's Four Quartets. I will, Doc. Um, but as has been my practice, I want to I want to say as little as I can and let the poem speak for itself. And I know with Elliot that's hard. I just know that. But let me make just this brief comment because remember, all of these poems are in the in the poetry section, so you can get copies of them and read them yourselves. And I hope you are because they really should be read, and you know they should be read aloud. Um, the interesting thing about this section is that it seems to make no sense. It just doesn't seem to belong to the other sections. T.S. Eliot was really greatly influenced by the French symbolist, the, the French poets of the preceding century. And what they did is um, a little bit like haiku, but very, very different from haiku in anything Eastern. What they did was present images on their own without any conceptual comments around them to help understand those images. But they did it in a way um, um, that reinforced the, or gave some sense that was evocative, um, talismanic, by the music that they brought to their poetry, by the rhythm of their lines. So there was a great power to the uh, musical movement through the lines that reinforced this sense that there was something to that image more than the image itself. Is that clear? So that 
so that we, we can't have somebody explaining something conceptually to us. We've just got this powerful image. That's what Eliot um, does in section four. He gives us these images with no explanations at all. But I want you to remember from our work on what we've done. Remember Eliot begins, time present, time past, are both perhaps present in time future, time future contained in time past, if all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. If all we've got is time, if we're left in a scientific world or an empiric world, we have no connection to something outside of our world, there is no way for man to be redeemed. Okay, at the center of our faith is a belief in a redeemer. That somebody came to us from outside our world, entered our world as a redeemer to redeem us. Okay? So any empiric, purely scientific notions will not get us there. So Eliot's been very clear. He's made conceptual statements. His great theme is this present. This on, this, remember he said in other lines that we've read in, that, in Burt Norton, um, just to take you back for a second. Um, at the still point of the turning wheel world, neither flesh nor fleshness, neither from nor towards. At the still point there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, ascent nor decline, except for the still point, the still point, there would be no dance. What is this still point? Eliot says again and again, the danger for us is that we live too much in a past, we regret what we've done, or we live desiring something in the future. But to live in the present moment is the occupation of a saint, a hero because it's only there where we meet Christ. Because it's in that present that God exists. Because remember, in God's time, there is no past, there is no future, it's this ongoing present. I'm amazed at you guys that you've been sticking this out. <laughs> I hear this stuff and my mind goes nuts. If anybody has any questions about this, remember that in the work that we've already done, we, we, we came to terms with that still point. If you remember, when we were doing Dante up the Paradiso, when Dante got to the back of the universe after he transversed, you know, trans, uh, went through all the, the word that I'm looking for, transversed all of the heavens, got to the back of the universe, he turned around with Beatrice and looked at the earth. From a purely physical perspective, the earth was um, still because that's where death was. And all the planets were revolving around it until you got to Prima Mobile, which was um, crystalline, translucent. Because it was the Prima Mobile that imparted speed from God, speed and order, to all the other planets. So Dante likened it to a tree. The roots of the tree were in God's mind, but the tree itself was our universe. Okay. So from a purely physical perspective, when you look back, the, the earth was still and all the planets revolved around it. When he looked at it, I think through Beatrice's eyes, he saw something entirely different because she was looking at God. And what he saw through her was a still point moving so fast, it stood still. And every planet revolving around it was moving slower and slower and slower. Okay. That still point is God. 
and according to Dante and Boethius, you know this from Boethius. That still point is moving so fast, it's still, it's everywhere. In the four quartets, we'll see there is no place that doesn't imply it. Let me just use the dance figure that he, remember he said, there can be no dance without it. Imagine a dance, so remember, Boethius's image was a wheel. If you look at the circumference of the wheel, it's always moving very fast. The farther away you get from the center, the faster it moves, right? Geometrically, mathematically, that center does not move. That's a geometric abstraction, right? The closer you get to the circumference, the more it moves. The closer you get to the center, the more you approach something motionless. And Eliot says, do not call it fixity, because that's not what it is. Do not call it fixity. Except for that still point, there would be no dance. So, according to Boethius's wheel, remember the Wheel of Fortune? The more you're on the circumference, the more you're under the influence of fate and destiny. The more you caught up in the random sense of things. Confused, tormented, anxious, fearful. The closer you approach that center, the closer you approach God. The more you see things in terms of holes, and the more you approach a piece. Uh-oh, something happened here. I've got a window coming up. I don't know what this means. Is everybody following? I don't know. Can you all see this window that just turned up on my... Do you all see it? Can anybody tell me what to... It won't click out. Yes, we see it. I don't know what to do. Anyway, um... I don't know what to do. At the bottom it says already have the Teams app. Try opening it again. I don't I think, know. Yeah, I think it's Marilyn. Marilyn may have done something. I think something. Usually somebody does something. Yeah, it's, it says Marilyn. Marilyn, can you click oh. out or do something? Try. Or, or Heather, I'm not sure who. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Anyway, let me just ignore it for a minute. I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna click out in a minute and try to come back or do something if I. But anyway, you're all following me. Oh, good. You're all you're all following me. Yes. The Boethian wheel of fortune because it, it's it's a major um, symbol for King Lear. Comes up all the time. Where's that going? Um, oh, Elliot Stillpoint. So Eve. Um, so. Eliot's already made clear a number of um, major themes for Burt Norton. High on that list is the still point and this idea that it's only in the present moment, not, the, not before, not after, that um, we get in touch with something transcendent, the divine with God, okay? Now, with that in mind, let me read part four. So even though he's just giving us an image Remember that clearly there's some meaning to this image that's not apparent and he doesn't give us any conceptual statements to make it clear. We're left to do that work on our own. Nobody can hold our hand. It's like we're standing in the presence of a mystery. There's no catechist. There's no teacher. There's no priest. We're left in the presence of this mystery and we have to see what will come of it, okay? 
I'll just remind you of this one thing. Remember the importance of trees. The cross is a tree. And remember the importance of the sun. The sun has always been an image of Christ, the God. And, and remember that in, in natural things here on earth, there would be no life without the sun. None. Um, the image of the sunflower is really appropriate because remember, as the sun goes across the sky, the sunflower always follows it. It has to because its life depends on that sun. I shouldn't have said either of those two things. You guys owe me, big time. Um, okay, with all those things said that I shouldn't have said, here's part four, okay? Part four, Bert Morton. Time and the bell have buried the day. The black clouds carry the sun away. Will the sunflower turn to us? Will the clematis stray down, bend to us? As if all things were oriented to us, you know, as humans instead of something else. Straight down to us, bend to us, tendril and spray, clutch and cling. Chill fingers of you be curled down on us after the kingfisher's wing has answered light to light and is silent. The light is still at the still point of the turning world. I'm going to leave those images with you, and I hope you will pick up this poem and begin reading it in earnest. Okay, I'll read it one more time. Section 4, Burt Norton. Time and the bell have buried the day. The black cloud carries the sun away. With a sunflower turned to us, with a clematis stray down, bend to us, tendril and spray, clutch and cling. Chill fingers of you be curled down on us, after the kingfisher's wing has answered light to light and is silent, the light is still at the still point of the turning world. Okay? Let me remind you, because we haven't, we've, we've been away for a couple, a couple of weeks. Remember, the four quartets has as its analog music, right? It's called four quartets. So it's four different voices. Each one of these voices is going to give a different variation on a theme. So we have to learn to see each of those voices and how it connects to that theme. Yeah? And each one of those four voices, each one of the four quartets, has five parts. So it's based on a musical model. It's analog as music, four quartets. Each quartet has five parts. We've got to look at those four quartets as four different voices playing a variation on a theme. Can we find, can we get to that one thing that they all have in common? Okay? Sure you guys want to go on? <laughs> I think about this. All I can say is, um, if any of you don't like mystery, you, you don't belong in this course. God. Um, okay. King Lear. Um... What I'd like to do tonight is um, I'd like to cover some of the major themes that we've been talking about very, very briefly. And then I'd like to read because you know that, um, that I don't want to leave everybody in your heads. You can grasp these themes and um, believe that you've grasped Lear. But it's like the Eucharist. We have to participate in it. We have to get involved with these characters. So after I lay out these themes, I'm going to read 
I'm going to spend as much of the last part of the class as I can reading passages and asking you questions about them as we go along. And I hope we can get through Acts 3 and 4, okay? Um, a couple of um, broad observations to begin. Remember, most modern critics look at Lear as a nihilistic play. They think it's Shakespeare's way of showing that the world is pointless. That, that every, everything is futile. There's no meaning to the world. I've said this before. Um, I, I believe this is Shakespeare's most painful play. The, the closest one to it in my mind is in Anthony and Cleopatra. The others, Macbeth, Othello, Hamlet. They're all tragedies, so they all involve some pain. But there's no, pl there's no play that entails a, a pain so widespread. And I think the pains are deeper here than in any of the other plays because they go to family relationships. The children are rebelling against their father. They're casting him out. They want to kill him. Um, um, there are betrayals among themselves. Um, they are all united against Lear at the beginning, and they turn on themselves. Um, Reagan loses her husband. She proposes to Edmund and wants Edmund to get rid of her husband. Um, or, I mean, Goneril wants um, Edmund to get rid of her husband, Albany. So the betrayals are widespread. Um, um, you know that the, the, the initial theme setting the play in motion is passing on an inheritance. All of us are at that point in life where we have to deal with how we're going to pass our life on. But if anybody's thinking about this seriously, you know that that should be something we're concerned about every one of our days. We may not be here in a month. What have we left our children with? What Lear is showing us is that parents don't do a very good job passing on good things. They're too blind. They're too caught up with things. And we see the effects of that in their children. So in that sense, it speaks to all of us. Me, Suzanne, you guys. Are, that um, the, the play is painful because it involves so many deaths at the end. But it's also painful because um, Gloucester loses his sight. Lear goes spiritually blind. And it's a painful process of his recovering his sight. He has to go through a lot of suffering before he can learn to see. And that's true of Gloucester as well. So it's a very painful play. It, at the center of it, once again, is the Job story in Boethius. I've said this before. Um, one of the major images that runs through the play is the Wheel of Fortune. It's referred to again and again and again. That's because Shakespeare knew Boethius well. He couldn't have written a tragedy the way he does if he didn't. Remember the, the concern of uh, Boethius' consolation of the Job story is how can a good God allow good people to suffer? How could a good God allow Boethius to suffer when he didn't deserve it? How could God allow Socrates to be executed when he was a virtuous man? Thomas More, Thomas Beckett, you know, those are people we've experienced and people we will. And more importantly, Christ. There has never been on the earth a more innocent person, and we, we, put him on a cross. We killed God. Our original sin was against God. That's our original injustice. 
That's our sin, our original sin, the cause of our sins. And to show the implications of that original injustice, we killed him. We put him on a cross. There was nobody more innocent than Christ, and we killed him. Um, I, I've been, you know, you know, in the last year in the Bible, I, oh, 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 I forgot this, sorry. <laughs> sorry. When we come back at, in um, St. Francis, in the first week of January, we're, we're going to close the class doing scripture. We're going to do Matthew and John and Revelation. So any of you want to join, you know, you're welcome to come on on Monday nights, but we're going to do scripture. Um, anyway, what, one of the things that's so distressing for me is I'd listen to scripture or read it, but, you know, when, when we hear the readings during the week, we've been hearing a lot in the last month or two of those scenes in which Christ performs a miracle. It can be in the temple with a man with a withered hand. You know, it can be um, the demoniacs or um, the child, you know, Chidris' daughter or the, um, the, the, um, the Roman captain's slave. Christ healed all the time. <laughs> when the Pharisees and Sadducees were present to those healings, all they could find was evil. They didn't see good. They're, they're a reminder of one of the great truths that we learn from Dante. How much do we see through eyes of pride and envy so we don't fully see the good in front of us? We're too concerned with the bad. Is that clear? It was one of the great truths of the purgatory that remember pride and envy, the, the, the great sins to do away with are sins of blindness, that pride blinds us, envy blinds us, wrath blinds us. Um, so in scene after scene after scene, when Christ is performing these extraordinary acts of goodness, the Pharisees and the Sadducees see bad. And it's on the basis of making those good things bad that they want to kill him. They say they want to plot to kill him. So the great problem at the center of the Job story and Boethius is why does God allow evil men to prosper and good men to suffer? And you know that two-thirds of the way through the book, Boethius's, or philosophy, Lady Philosophy's conclusion was there is no bad fortune. So if we see it, it comes from something in our eyes, some failure of faith on our part. Because we should also be aware, or maybe primarily aware, that God is doing something to bring some good out of it. He does not abandon us. And he does not leave us. He protects our free will by allowing suffering to go on in the world, but he's always doing something to bring goodness out of it. Do we see it? How strong is our faith? How deep is our sight? How close are we to the center of that circle where we begin to see holes? Yeah, not just parts. Because parts are broken up and fragmented. We, we, we largely miss some good in them. Is that clear? Let me stop for a minute because that's a lot. But those are the, those are the great background concerns that I want everybody to just keep in your mind while we read that. But let me stop. Any questions about that? Connie, I know you've got a question. 
No. Nobody? Heather, where did you go? God. I hope we didn't lose her because of some technical thing. No, I'm here. Oh, you're there? Yes. Oh, good. Show yourself. Or I'm do you here. guys see her? Am I, I, I am. Oh. I just must be like on a different... What's the matter with my screen? screen? Oh, there you I are. Everybody sees Heather except the knock <laughs> <laughs> It's got to be... Okay, I hear the irony in that. I hear I heard it if nobody else did. So what you're saying is I'm suffering from some form of blindness here. <laughs> um, no questions. Okay. Okay. New definition for scotoma. What, what, David? <laughs> A new definition for scotoma. <laughs> I don't even know the meaning of that word. I can't respond to it. Um, all right, you guys, you can stop picking right now. Um, okay, when we left off last time, remember Lear had given up his um, property, his authority, but he, um, he wanted to give up all the responsibilities of authority, all burdens, and still have the prerogative of authority. Yeah? And he bargained that off on the basis of love. So he treated love as if it's something you can buy off. Think about, think about Shakespeare's awareness. I, this is really, to me, sort of amazing. Think about Shakespeare's awareness of the English kings and how many of them ruled exactly in that way through the whole line up to Shakespeare's time and beyond, beyond. That love is not something you can trade on, you can't barter it. And um, you cannot give up your responsibilities in your authority. You can't give up all those things and still want the prerogatives of authority. Because remember, when he went to um, Goneril's house um, and she asked him to give up his train, he was outraged because that would take his power away. And he left in outrage, cursing her, and went to Reagan, thinking he'd get a different answer and found the same answer there. And that's where we left off. He, he leaves his daughters um, and goes out into the heath, and it's there where he meets um, Edgar and um, Kent. Edgar's disguised himself as poor Tom, and Kent, remember, has already disguised himself as another man in order to serve Lear. So we know that at least at this point, one, one human being, two, we don't see, we'll see Cordelia shortly, but Kent is the one person who remains loyal to Lear. Edgar remains loyal to his father, even though his fa he thinks his father has um, renounced him because of um, all that Edmund does. Um, but Edgar um, remains loyal. Um, even though his father has done stupid, stupid things. Okay, so I want to pick up there, and I'd like to look at lines with you guys. Okay, and I just I want to focus on Acts three and four tonight. See if we can get through them. These passages. Um, remember that Edmund um, has um, concocted this plot against his brother and his father so that he can inherit his property because he's been disinherited. He has nothing. So Shakespeare's 
dealing, remember that one of the major themes, there's a number of them, one of them is this idea of justice. Is justice natural or is it conventional, man-made? And Edmund thinks he can create his own justice by doing anything he can to get authority and property for himself by concocting this plot. He betrays his father to Cornwall, tells him, and um, and we learn in Act 3 that the, um, France has sent an army to invade England um, with um, Cordelia to protect Lear. Um, Edmund and, Lee and um, Goneril leave to warn Albany about the invasion. Gloucester is captured and there's that fight between Gloucester and Cornwall. Um, Cornwall is going to gouge out his eyes. Again, one of the servants responds to prevent it and is killed. So there's once again a servant loyal to a lord who risks his life to save his lord. It's exactly what Kent's doing. It's what Ed, Ed, or Edgar is doing in some way. Reagan kills the servant, but in the in the midst of that tussle, um, Cornwall is stabbed and killed. So at that point, Reagan is a widow. Okay. In Act Four, Edmund Edgar, sorry, um, um, has already put on this disguise, and he meets Gloucester after he's blinded, and he's horrified. And it's at that point that he. I want to look at this really closely. Um, for a number of reasons. I'll wait till we get there. He takes his father to the cliffs of Dover and, and um, takes him through a play, really a charade. He takes him to this cliff with the idea that he will jump off and commit suicide, kill himself, take his life because the demons have possessed him. So we're looking at a man who's in some sense almost demonic. He's possessed. He's going mad. And his son has to deal with this problem. I want everybody to take this seriously. Very serious. This is a child dealing with a parent who's got all these disorders. What's the response of that child to those disorders? Edgar puts on a disguise, takes his father to the cliffs, and has him jump off when it's only a few foot fall. And his father thinks he survived. And it's from that point on that his father seems to have undergone a conversion. We're going to see at the end that he lapses, he slides back a little bit. But that's a major turning point for Gloucester. He undergoes a kind of death. Okay. Um, remember, Reagan is um, widowed now. She sends a letter to Edmund declaring his love for, her, for him and asking that Edmund kill um, um, her husband and marry her so that she and, and um, Edgar will rule, because she looks at Albany as feminine, weakly, and cowardly. Um, when Kent is um, um, on the way with, um, to um, Dover Beach, Gloucester and Lear meet. And it's really the first time they've met since Lear um, divided up the kingdom. Um, Gloucester is blind. His eyes are gouged out. Lear has gone apparently mad. And they're both on the way to Dover. And when they get there, they will be greeted by um, Cordelia. Um, the French and English armies will fight. The English armies will defeat the French. Lear and Cordelia will be captured. But that's, um, that's ahead of us in the, um, the fifth act. Um, I think, is there anything else that I need to... Um, 
all the stuff that Lear goes through on the heat. Yeah, I want to get that. Um, I think that those are the most important lines. So let me let me turn to the lines themselves. Okay. What I'd like to do is go through the lines and look at them because my assumption is that, like, oh, and we've got to participate in it. We just, I just can't leave you with these themes. Some of the major themes I've already mentioned, okay? Um, the theme of the um, justice, whether justice is natural to men or man-made, because there are people who think they can make justice what they want, when Cornwall is ready, here in fact, take a look at it. In Act, I want to just for a minute have you look at some lines. Go to Act 3, Scene 7, just briefly, very quickly. Where is it, Act? Sorry, wait. Uh oh. Oh, no wonder. Actually, scene seven. Um, this is when Cornwall has discovered that um, Gloucester is going to betray them, tell Lear that he's in danger. And in Cornwall's mind, that's traitorous. In Act 3, Scene 7, about line 20 or so, um, Cornwall sends to get Gloucester and bring him here. He says, Go seek the traitor Gloucester. Pinion him like a thief, bring him before us. Look at the words that follow that. Though well we may not pass upon his life without the form of justice, yet our power shall do a court to our wrath, a courtesy to our wrath, which men may blame but not control. Somebody paraphrased those, those lines. What's he saying? Because it goes to one of the fundamental principles of the play. Though well we may not pass upon his life without the form of justice, yet our power shall do a, cor a courtesy to our wrath, which men may blame but not control. What's he saying in simple words? Paraphrase it in simple language. Karen, you go ahead. Justice comes in the next life. Mm. I don't, I don't. After life. Anybody? They can't condemn him to death without um, some form of justice. formal justice. Right. Um, but their power um, can change all that. Change all of that, and men may blame them, but they can't stop it. Because he has the power. Remember this thesis, because I've said it from the beginning. God, we are, I'm so, God, I'm just thrilled to do this stuff with you guys. Remember the great theme of Plato's Republic was the, the, the theme of justice. It's introduced in the beginning of the, in the work, and, and Thersimachus says, justice is what the stronger over the weaker make it. Whoever has power can determine what justice is. That's what Socrates has got to deal with. Now, hold on. Does everybody see the relevance of that today in what's going on in American politics. I hope it's clear that some people believe if you have power you can make justice whatever you want it to make. You can turn men, you can turn killers loose. I mean you can do lots of things. It doesn't matter with other people because you've got the power in your hands. I hope that's clear because in that sense we're watching a country unravel 
because it's so widespread. He's saying we should um, um, submit this to a court of law and see justice, but I'm going to do what I want because I have the power and nobody's going to be able to do anything about it. So on the one hand, we have Cornwall espousing man-made justice, that you can make justice what you want. Okay. Um, there are those other lines. Let me just um, go to Act 4, Scene 2. I'm just trying to pick out some things before we go through the play. Just to Act 4, Scene 2. Um, this is... Yep. Thanks. Um... Albany's together with Goneril and a messenger, and the messenger says, Oh my good lord, the Duke of Cornwall is dead, slain by a servant. Albany, Gloucester's eyes, because they, he learns that Gloucester had his eyes plucked out. We know that Albany's a good man. We, we, we didn't know it before, we know it because Goneril thinks he's weakly, and, you know, that is, he doesn't use power to get what she wants him to get. She wants a husband under her thumb. Albany's response to what he hears, this shows you are above you justicers, that these are nether crimes do speedily can venge, but oh poor Gloucester lost his eyes. This shows you are above you justicers, that these are nether crimes so speedily can venge. Somebody translate that, paraphrase it. What's he saying? What's Albany saying? Heather, you want to give it a try? What what line is it in scene two? It's sorry, it's Act Four, Scene Two, about line seventy nine eighty. The text will probably vary a little bit, but or anybody, K. Yeah, I just found it. Do you have anybody? Michael. Sorry, I was just catching to the right spot here. Melody. Well, okay, so I'm confused because to me that sounds like this shows you're above, you're the you're the judge, and that um, you're so quick to avenge these earthly crimes, like God isn't a part of it, like you are bigger than God. But this play is written before Jesus. I mean, do they do? No, it's written after Jesus. But it takes, wait, hold on. It's written way after Shakespeare's writing this. Remember, and but he's writing yes. yes about it. Yeah, right. But didn't King Lear live before Jesus's time? Is that here? Wait, let me let me read the passage before to clear. Hold on. This will, I think, the messenger okay. says a servant that he bred thrilled with remorse opposed against the act, bending his sword to his great master, who there in rage flew on him and amongst them felled him dead, but not without that harmful stroke which since hath plucked him after. So he killed the servant, but not before the servant killed or, or wounded, gave him a fatal wound. Okay. In response to that, Albany says, this shows you are above, you justicers, 
that these are nether crimes. Nether crimes mean hellish. These are nether okay. crimes. Um, so speedily can avenge. You can avenge them. But oh, poor just or Gloucester lost his eye. I mean, he, he's sympathetic. What's he saying? Let me stop. Um, he, he's saying that he's, be- that he's better than the the servant, the slave. That they're that they're better than the the lowly people who. I mean, I don't know. That what he's saying is the justice is real. That there is a higher power. You justices are real. The fact that the servant gave a mortal wound to or a mortal wound to uh, Cornwall means oh, okay. there's a higher order justicing thing. You justicers. So here are the two views. And, and, and think about this, because it gives away the characters. Yeah, Cornwall thinks he can take power and make justice whatever he wants. Albany's a good man, and he recognizes that there's a justice in the world, and it showed in this scene where the servant took the life of a lord. So I just, I'm illustrating that because those are the tension, those are the two poles in which this play takes place, that there are two views in conflict. Men who hold that justice is man-made, it depends on, remember, that's Socrates' great, that's the problem he had to face in the Republic. Justice is whatever the stronger or the weaker make it. Power determines it. How far do you have to look in the world to find examples of that? God. <laughs> you, I mean, there's not a place in the world. That, and, put, and, and the interesting thing, and what frightens me today, is the one place that set itself against the world in those terms, because everywhere in the world power determines justice. Every regime practically in the world rests on that premise. America was established to answer it, to say all men are created equal under God, that we're bound by the laws, you know, it goes on and on. So we've got these two views, okay, that are the poles. So some of the major themes, this idea of justice, the importance of sight, how blind people are to the nature of their actions. Um, the Heath, the two worlds, we've seen it in almost every play we've read of Shakespeare, Merchant of, Ven- or Merchant of Venice, Portia's Belmont, remember Belmont in Venice, Othello, Belmont in um, Cyprus, um, All's Well, um, France and Italy, right? Every play has had two regimes, and this is what's important. You've got the castle world of the lords, and the heath, the place of poverty, of loss, of um, what to call it. It's that condition in which human beings share when they're learning to see, the condition of suffering. So I, I want everybody to remember, Shakespeare is always doing with two settings. They're literally true. They're there. Belmont is a real place. But it's important to see those settings symbolically, that they image something in the soul. The heath is a place of suffering. It's where men come together here, off the circumference, and begin to move towards the center through suffering. Okay, so we've got the two settings. These are some of the and sight, and the one that I want to get to in a second is this is this theme of putting on disguises and taking on roles. 
Edgar has to put on disguise, right? Edmund has to put on, or I mean, uh, Kent has to put on a disguise, right? Oh, Doc, would you stop? Okay, so with those things, let me stop. What I'd like to do is go to the readings and pick up the plot and how it unfolds. Any questions on any of those? If you've got questions on these themes, please. They're the major concerns of Lear. It's the most painful play. The suffering is more extensive here than in any play. We're learning a lot about human suffering, particularly in families, particularly in families. So it speaks so directly to the burdens that most of us carry about our children or what we can do or can't do or should do or, yeah? So let me stop. Nope, come on, nope, I can't believe this. I have one question. Good. It's so it's about. I need to breathe. I, I do this too much. <laughs> it's really true. I but I didn't go to sleep last night because I'm finishing this book and it just was on my mind. And I said to Susanna, I mean, getting up, I was exhausted. That that she has to live with this all the time. You know that this. God, I'm more grateful for your questions than you can know. Not just for. <laughs> reasons of continuing that I'm glad to have I'm glad for the break come on Heather go okay so remembering how we talked about how setting was so important in Hamlet and the idea that Hamlet was coming back from Wittenberg and what did that say about the play wait hold on there, you said the study yeah like in Hamlet you know how we talked about the setting oh the, the setting. setting oh setting sorry setting. Said, go yes sorry good so Wow. What is is Shakespeare? I don't know if you have any insight on this, but is Shakespeare trying to communicate something to us by setting this in a past time before the time of Christ, but also anachronistically having a lord of England and a lord of France who if if this play is set as far back as what we talked about, like during the time of Job, correct, or Jonah? It's, I so, it's no, it's it's in uh, Isaiah, if I remember. Oh, the time of Isaiah. I think so. There would not have been an England and a France um, at that time period. I I think there would have been. I don't think they would have constituted the way they are. But go ahead. But go ahead. So, is there something to that that they're so? I mean, England would have been a it would have been a cluster of. You know, if we're talking, that would be what three, three thousand BC, like two thousand BC. So England ninth would century, be like, ninth century before Christ. I think this oh, is, is that Isaiah. So I think it's ninth century BC. Okay, that's what I was. I was trying to figure out what the. What but go the ahead, go ahead with your question because I completed. So is there so something? Because I mean, like England and France don't truly come into being until the early part of the of the first millennium after Christ. Yes. Correct? No? Wow. I mean, as Shakespeare presents them, I think so, but I would say, I mean, they're not known the same it's, way. They're not oriented. They're not configured the same way, but there are these distinct identities. The, the, Gallic, okay. the Gallic, the Anglo-Saxon world, and, and you're correct to describe it in a state of division, you know, 
uh, and with tri- very ruling. tribal, very yeah, right. But but not I, centralized. But, so it's a, it's a decentralized power structure. Yeah, but hold, because I the 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 center of your question is lies elsewhere. Your question is, or I thought you were going. You said, what is Shakespeare doing in in constantly creating these different settings, and in this case, doing what he did. So I thought right. your question is, so focus the question clearly, can you? What, what are you asking? So I guess it's a twofold question. Why he chose to set it in the time that he did. Yeah. And then it just, it just seemed to me like it was a little anachronistic, you know, calling it England and France when there, when it really, there was no per se England and France. It was more tribal. It was Good. more disorganized and dis- decentralized. Yes. Um, than the England and France of Shakespeare's time that right. he was, you know, familiar with. So I just didn't know if there was something with that juxtaposition, or um, why he, why if there's any insight into why he would have made that choice. Yeah, let me let me let me stop because it's you got there's a lot there, and I want to give everybody a chance to respond because I'm going to put this in everybody else. If I can just try to encapsulate, you know, all that Heather's saying. Remember. Um, Shakespeare's not his. Shakespeare knows history probably better than most historians, but he doesn't hold to literal historical fact. So when he sets Hamlet in Wittenberg, he's putting him in a setting that historically didn't coincide with the actual Prince Hamlet. Right? So he's got two settings one is Wittenberg, one is um, Denmark. And the Wittenberg that Hamlet comes from didn't exist at the time of Hamlet. So Shakespeare is using two settings without being historically literal. And I, so one part of Hester's question is, he's taking us back to nine centuries before Christ in England, when England and France weren't configured the way they are at Shakespeare's time. So we're not meant to take them literally the way people might do Wittenberg. We know that he's using... I mean, this is, I think you're partly answering your own question, the way you frame it. It's Shakespeare's using set two different settings for what in this play, if I can just put it that way. And if we can take that part right now. So anybody, Melody, Michael, Karen, Bob. Um, I would guess it's for familiarity, so that, that, that his audience could kind of get the feeling of the people that live there by who is occupying those spaces now. So the people that lived in Britain at that time had a certain idea about royalty, and he wants them to use that same correlation, even though King Lear lived, or the fictional King Lear lived centuries before that. But it's that same kind of mindset. That's my guess, but I could be definitely wrong. Michael, what's your thought? Which, what, do you have a thought on this? Well, uh, if, if indeed uh, King Lear was a real person... He was, he was. And there, and there were legends about him. Uh, I should think that uh, the real history of Lear is probably uh, less closely documented than... Oh, it might as well just be a legend, you know, for for the amount of actual historical documents they have. So, but I'm, and my point is that I don't 
Shakespeare was not writing this as a history in the same way as his other histories were. Uh, well, like uh, Antony and Cleopatra is very historical. Well, yeah. Well, let me go. The Henriot plays, Henry the Fourth, you know, one right. or two, and okay. I mean, those are more historically rooted. He, so he's yeah. he's, he's done right. actual so he, history plays. Right, but, and he but, had much more interest in portraying the 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 pathos of. Uh, oh, a, a, a man who loses his, who who gives up his power and is at the mercy of his errant children. Uh, he's more interested in the the human story there than the history. So yeah, the, I think maybe the the setting is, is true. That maybe there, there there would not have been true kingdoms of England and France at the time, but. Uh, there would have been Britons living in in the island of, mm -hmm. but, you know. So that <laughs> that's that's my thought on it. Let me just offer a quick thought because I want to I want I want to move on because we've got a lot to do. Um, I, I I I think I've set this out in my notes, but I'm not sure you've all read them. But in the study notes that I gave you, I gave a number of thoughts that I've had in response to your exactly that question, Heather. My own sense, if I can do this briefly, and I haven't gone back to my notes in ages, so I'm sure I'm going to miss something here, but on a general level, I don't have any doubts myself, even though I can't, you know, prove this, that Shakespeare is going back to a pre-Christian world because he's dealing with an audience, I've already made the point, that he's dealing with an audience that's lost its faith, that's losing its faith. It's a time of, so it's the beginning of the skepticism that is a, deeply a part of our lives now. If you talk with anybody using their minds, they're not going to believe any of this stuff. God, miracles, royalty, um, natural justice. I mean, they're not going to believe any of that. that. That has no reality for them at all. So for me, the profounder reason that Shakespeare's doing this is that he knows he's living, the Copernican Revolution has taken place. We saw in Hamlet, the Reformation has taken place. He's dealing with disorders that are defining the modern world. I just think he's that brilliant. He knows. So in going back to Lear, he's going back to a pre-Christian world and exploring the implications, the consequences of living a life without Christ. Now, one of the—I mean, one of the questions I will come because you know that I've asked at every play: Are there Christ figures here? Christ doesn't exist at this time, but he's doing here what he did with Anthony and Cleopatra. We've, we've gone over this. He's going back to a pre—in Anthony and Cleopatra, he's showing that there's some love <laughs> playing itself out as if it's on the way to something that isn't quite yet. The Romans don't know about it. We do by what he does with the play. He's doing something a little bit like that here. He's using these two settings, the way he uses the settings in Anthony and Cleopatra, and it's interesting you bring that up, Heather, and then Hamlet. Because it's his way of being able to set things against, like the Heath. Symbolically, it gives him a means of, it gives him a means of critiquing the court order. When everybody, all the kings and queens that he's known, have been so caught up with power in the way that they rule, they're not servants, none of them, um, that they create all these problems. And England has been being torn apart by civil wars, largely religious, for ages, or, or actually religious and political. 
So one of the things that he can do as a poet, here I'm going back again, as a poet, is that he can help us to see things that are more universal than a historian would get that speaks to all of us because the problems are real. When I, I mean, I cringe when I look at what Lear does. It just frightens me to look at him and put those questions to myself as a father, you know, or, or you guys as fathers and mothers. So it seems to me, Heather, that that, I mean, there's, I think there may be multiple reasons, but the, to me, the more important one that speaks directly to what he's doing at Poet, and, and think about this. If you look at modern criticisms on Shakespeare, and particularly Lear, they're all going to say cynicism, nihilism, nothing, futility. They're all killing each other. At square that with the, the frequent use of Boethius's Wheel of Fortune, or the two attitudes that I just set out by, you know, by Albany and... Uh, because, because Boethius's argument, remember, is there is no bad fortune. And one of the things that moderns don't deal with is that all the evil in the play is answered. And not only answered, but I'm going to say this. I'm going to, I, I don't want to give this away because I don't want to get to the fifth act today. Don't. Suzanne just said don't. <laughs> there are graces, there are graces that are amazing at the end of the play, even though they involve suffering. Can we see them? Will we see them? I'm not going to go there. But I'll put that out for you. Okay. Let me go on. Can I go on? Or did 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 that did, is that okay, Heather? Or did you have more? I think Melody. Um, go ahead. Doug. I think Melody really touched on it that the reason for the pre-Christian stuff you've already covered. The reason for having. Oh, familiarity. Yeah. Yeah. So the reason for having. Yeah lords and dukes and all right, that kind of right. stuff that would not have been there wow. yeah. um, is because that's a familiar power structure and they can take what they know about power because they're being called the king of France and the duke right. of Burgundy right. and right. those things didn't exist but the people who are seeing the play are going to relate to it as if they yeah, let's take that up for a second because it's such a good. I'm glad Doc has brought us back. So when you look at the power structure in terms of familiarity, I mean to pick up what Melody was saying. Um, you leave this group again. I'm going to have hard words for you, Melody. Join the club, Doctor Bob. Join the club. If um, if um, if the Lord's people with titles, the kings, were looking to this play. So is, is the general way in which Shakespeare presents lords and kings favorable or disfavorable? Approving or disapproving? Negative or positive? Negative. Pretty negative, right? I mean, yeah. there's very little good to say about people in structure. They're on that circumference. So, I mean, just to answer your question and from another perspective, Heather, using uh, Melody's, you know, um, answer, it provides a way of critiquing that without directly putting Shakespeare in danger of being put in the, t <laughs> in the tower. <laughs> that, that is, that would, would they have related to it as much if he was historically accurate, went back and dealt with English history and, you know, 
the actual historical terms. Let's go on, can we? Because we've got so much more to cover, and these are really good insights. So, can we can we go on? Go back to now. With all of that said, we are not going to finish this this week, and you guys are to blame. What else? What else is there to say? Um, act two. Act two. Yeah, we're going back. Um, at, at the end of Act 2-4, don't go there, Act 2-4, Lear has gone to Reagan's expecting um, support for his position towards Goneril. And we know, ironically, uh, here, here's the blindness. God, this is stunning. Imagine how many of us go to old age this way, you know. He goes there thinking Reagan's going to support him in his anger against Goneril. What's the irony? The two sisters are in league. They've already. We 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 know from the opening scene when when Lear walks off stage, and the daughters have been given that inheritance, what they're going to do. You think they're going to sacrifice that power? And the interesting thing is, you think they're going to sacrifice that power for their father now? And, and does anybody see the implications of their choice then that both of those women want to kill each other later over Edmund? I hope everybody's seen that, that the implications of wanting to kill are, are, even, are already there in the beginning, even though there's nothing said about being a murderess or a, you know. Is that clear? The ironies are so deep. He comes to Reagan expecting some relief. And instead, Reagan says, <laughs> you know, give them all up. So on Act 2, Scene 4, line 250 or so, he says, when Reagan says, um, give them all up, and Lear, ironically, turns back to, to Goneril, God, the, the bargaining spirit of that mind. I'll go back because it's better to have 50 than 25. Somebody describe the state of Lear's soul in that moment, in that, in that moment. Please, somebody describe it. Just it, very briefly. He's, he's desperate. And absolutely selfish. Yeah. Absolutely self-centered. He will do what he can to get whatever he wants for himself. It's better to have 25. I'll go with thee. <laughs> he's just, wait, remember, he just cursed his daughter, Goneril. I mean... You can't find harsher words, and, and I think words that are deserved, but you can't find harsher words. I'll go with thee, thy fifty yet doth double twenty-five, and thou art twice her love. Really? Goneril, hear me, my lord, what need you have twenty and five, ten, five, to follow in a house where twice so many have a common to tend you? What, and Reagan, what need one? Okay, I want to look at this speech because is everybody following the drama? This is a father who has been outraged by the treatment by one daughter, has gone to the other, finds the same treatment, wants to go back to the first because he thinks it'll even be better, and then she says no, and the, um, the second one says, why even one? Why need one? Now this is a man who's been a king. He wants to give it the burdens of authority, responsibility, while he keeps the prerogative. 
he does not want, it's like moderns who want to have their life the way they want, free of burdens. Get rid of a child. Do what you will. Have your pleasure. Lear says, Act 2, Scene 4, Line 260. And I, I'm, I'm asking, what's the meaning of these words? What's he saying in this response? The reason not the need, our basest beggars are in the poorest things superfluous. Allow me not nature more than nature needs. A man's life is cheap as beasts. Thou art a lady, if only to go warm were gorgeous. Why nature needs not what thou gorgeous wearest, which scarcely keeps thee warm. But for true need, you heavens, give me that patience, patience I need. You see me here, you gods, a poor old man. He goes on, know you unnatural hags, I will have such revenges on you both that all the world shall know I will do no such things, what they are, yet I know not. Um, but they shall be the terrors of the earth. You think I'll weep? No, I'll not weep. But go to those opening lines. This is an important moment. So stop here. For, can we? God, there's too much here. To, I, I don't know that we're going to finish next week. There's too much here. Lear's been a king. He's been able to do whatever he wants. He's got a family. Yeah. Um, he's passed it on. We've gone through that. Here, both daughters have rejected him, and he's left outraged, absolutely outraged. And the daughter says, Why well, need one? Give up all your power. Give it all up. Lear says, Oh, reason not the need. Our basis beggars are in the poorest things superfluous. Allow not nature more than nature needs. Man's life is cheap as beasts. Thou art a lady, if only to go warm were gorgeous. Why, nature needs not what thou gorgeous wearest, which scarcely keeps thee warm. But for true need, you heavens, give me that patience, patience I need. You see me here, you God support me. What is he saying? Once again, can we paraphrase his lines? Do I want something? No, what? I thought you were looking at me. No, sorry. No. I'm so glad to be doing this. I mean, this is so profound to me, and it so touches on our lives. It's, it's painful to look at because it's so real. But it's like a shaft of light. It's like, here's a grace to help us see, even if it's painful. What's Lear saying? Michael, he's, go ahead. He's saying that uh, to, to Reagan... Reagan wants to take away all of his cohort, but uh, he's, and she says she justifies it by saying, uh, "Why do you need these these men?" But his response is that even the poorest beggar has something that he doesn't absolutely need to survive, and I'm a king, and yet. Uh, all of my, all of my men are being taken away from me. Uh, so uh, he's he's rebelling against her denial based on her justification, her her false premises that you don't need these men. So yeah, what, what do you need? Denying his kingship. Let me let me just quickly to to see if this helps some. In Act 3, Scene 4, about line 100, you don't have to go there, but 
Act 3, Scene 4. Lear says in response to Edgar, who presents himself as a servant, Thou were better in a grave than to answer with thy uncovered, because remember, they're in a storm. I want to go to that Nick. This is where we're going next. He's on the heath. It's going to be storming. So they've been dispossessed of every. So they're like the homeless, the dispossessed. Lear was a king. He's lost everything. And he's outraged at the ingratitude of his children. He's there in a heath. Remember, remember so to, to go to Heather's thing about Wittenberg and. Um, Denmark and you know um, Venice and Belmont that that these are images of something in the soul to help us see something. We're on the heath. The people there are dispossessed. They've lost everything. And so sh- sh- just beyond this moment when Lear ex- um, has this exchange with his daughters, he's speaking with Edgar on the heath. This is Act Four, Scene or Act Three, Scene Four, and he says about line one hundred. Thou were better in a grave than to answer with thy uncovered body this extremity of the skies. Is man no more than this? Consider him well. Thou owest the worm no silk, the beast no hide, the sheep no wool, the cat no perfume. Ha, here, threes ons are sophisticated. Thou art the thing itself. An accommodated man is no more but such a poor bear forked animal as thou art off off you lendings as if all his trappings of royalty were lent to him not of his nature he takes them off and it's as if he's beginning to find out who he is in some existential way when all those trappings are taken away so let me try to put this in perspective if I can imagine any of us Losing all of the security, all of the things that we surround ourselves with in our homes. And we take our place on the streets with nothing. Who are we then? If we take away all of our trappings, our coverings, our tailorings, our outward... Who are we? Okay? So keep that in mind because at this moment, Lear takes off his clothes as if he's begun to see who he is without all these other things, okay? Now go back to that response to his daughters. O reason not the need, our basest beggars are in the poorest things superfluous. Allow not nature more than nature needs, man's life is cheap as beast. Thou art a lady, if only to go warm or gorgeous, why nature needs not what thou gorgeous wearest, which scarcely keeps thee warm. Think about what the women would have been wearing at that time in court. But for true need, you heavens, give me that patience, patience I need. You see me here, you gods, a poor old man. He goes on. What's he saying? Karen, you have a thought? I don't think the lines are easy. I, I mean, it's, it's one of the reasons I want to go through these, because it's so easy to go through this stuff and... We've got a plot line that helps us, but some of these passages are profound. What he does with language is so profound. Mel- Melody, can you have a thought? Well, I, I guess I'm thinking he's saying what I need is the support of my daughters. What I need is my family to come around me and treat me like their king, even though I'm not that anymore. Nobody needs what they have. You don't need your fancy dresses. 
it makes you who you are and your love and support makes me who I think I was and by you dissing me I don't feel that anymore so he feels like he's naked yeah so what is need I mean what then what because I, I think you're right because we build up these things around us and we think we need them our life depends on them if they're taken away I mean we're back at the Iliad if honor is conferred on us by our possessions what happens when those possessions are taken away? This is so basic to the beginning of our work together. Is everybody following me? I hope I'm not going too fast. The honor no, code no. in the Iliad, remember, was based on booty. When you conquered somebody, you took his weapons, his horse, his girl. These all showed who you were. Achilles turns away from that, outside, steps outside that code. If you take that stuff away, existentially, who are you? Remember in the ninth book of the Achilles, or the Iliad, when um, Agamemnon sends the embassy to Achilles to bribe him back into the war, he gives, he says, you can have cities, women, tons of wealth. Achilles' response is, such things I need not, I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. That's the central passage of the Iliad. I think maybe here he discovers that he's created a monster or two monsters because he's, by giving away his kingdom, created these women who now need this stuff and he's starting to understand that's not, that's not what I want, just like Achilles. That's not what makes me great. What makes me great is... Does he even know at this point who he is? No. No, no he doesn't. No. Is everybody clear on that? The, the lines I want to just end this passage with. So, how do you understand, but for true need, for true need, you heavens give me that patience, patience I need. You see me here, you gods, a poor old man is full of grief. You know, he goes on. What is that true need? I mean, I, I, I don't think he knows himself. I'm, I don't even think he knows what it is. But do we have any sense of what's happening to it at this moment when he says that? Um, but for true need, you heavens, give me that patience, patience I need. What, what, can anybody paraphrase that? What's he saying? I think he's saying two things on two levels. I think he's asking for patience because here he is in this situation and the girls just cut him off completely. They have no mercy so his patience is almost a, a pleading for mercy for him to adapt to the new situation, but they're having no mercy on him. And so he's, he's asking, please be patient with me while I try to figure out, like, where I go from here if you are going to be so harsh and merciless. Yeah. And that's, and this point I really see is this whole speech pivots on that point. Because after that point, that's where he then, he moves into this sort of prayer for giving him right, for giving him righteous anger. Um, toy, like righteous anger toward these girls who have not treated him with mercy and justice. Or love. Or love. Or love. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah I, I, yeah, I think you're right, Heather. And, and it seems to me one of the things, it's it's really interesting, it, it I want to read the next page. We're about out of time, and I want to be careful of time here. 
that one of the ways we can describe what's going on in Lear at this moment is that he's entering into a mystery. Everything that he's known is gone. It's about to be, I mean, he will take it off when he takes off his clothes in a moment, but to say, patience I need, that, that patience I need, you heavens, give me that, you heavens, that he's entering a world that, in, in which he has no bearings, no orientation, it does, he can't relate, um, he's lost his daughter, as I think what uh, Melody said a minute ago, you know, is true, what you're saying. So in one sense, one way to understand what's happening at this moment, he's entering into something which he can't understand at all. Which is the reason for, I mean, the, the shakes are so amazing, the reason for patience. I mean, how else do you enter that world when you're entering something where you don't know how to negotiate, how to navigate, you don't have a control of it, you've lost control of everything, your daughters now have it, they're mistreating you, right? So we're at the beginning of a turning point here, okay? If we can st stop, you may have comments, but hold them for a minute, because I want to I try to get through a couple of scenes here before we leave. I'd wanted to get through scene four, <laughs> I mean act four, and we're not, we're not going to make it. Lear goes to the heath, act three, scene two. Blow winds and crack your cheeks, rage. This is the beginning of act two. Or, sorry, scene, act three, scene two. Lear enters the heath with the fool. With the fool. Not the lords, not these other people. Blow winds and crack your cheeks, rage. Blow you cataracts and hurricanos. Spout till you have drenched our steeples. Drowned the cocks. You sulfurous and thought-executing fires, thought-executing fires, vaunt couriers of oak-cleaving thunderbolts. Has anybody done what, with language what Shakespeare has? Singe my white beard, and thou all-shaking thunder strike, flat the thick rotundity of the world, crack nature's molds, all germane spill at once, that makes ungrateful man. The germanes are the seminal principles that give form to everything in nature. So he's saying, in rage, set chaos loose, blow winds crack. There has to be something chaotic in nature, close enough to what he feels, that there's some correspondence between him and a, as a human being and the chaos that's overtaken him. So he's, it's like he's looking for a correlative. Um, um, in a, a few lines bef um, along, Kent arrives, and, or is there with him, sorry, um, and comes to him and, and, and says, Alas, sir, are you here? Um, man's nature cannot carry the affliction nor the fear. He's aware that the burdens Lear is facing are beyond him, that there's no way as an old man he can bear them. And Lear says about line 50, let the great gods that keep this dreadful putter o'er our heads find out their enemies now. He's asking for justice. Let there be some re retribution for the wrongs against him. Tremble, thou wretch, thou hast within thee undivulged crimes, unwhipped of justice. Hide thee, thou bloody hand, thou perjured, those similar of virtue, that is, all you things that seem to be okay, you walk around in your respectable world acting like you're okay. God wreck all that. Take it all away. Strip you. Um, come to justice. Be brought to justice. Hide thee, thou bloody hand, thou perjured, thou similar of virtue, 
that are incestuous, caitiff to pieces shake, that heart, that undercovered and convenient seeming has practiced on man's life. Close pin-up guilts, writhe your concealing continence and cry, these dreadful summoners, grace. I am a man more sinned against than sinning. I can't. Where are you? It's at three, scene two, Doug. I, just a few, four, line 40, 50. I can't. I can, who, writing English, can get close to writing lines like that? What has he just said, and how do we understand Lear at this moment? Before we go on. Tremble thou wretch that hast within thee undivulged crimes. He sees that underneath all the appearances of respectability and goodness are these hidden crimes. And he wants them to be punished. He's asking for some justice in the world to come down and wreck havoc on these. Caitiff to pieces shake. That, un that undercover and convenient seeming has practiced. All that you're seeming to be nice and respectable just covers up the wrong you do with people. You think you're okay, but you're not. Close pent-up guilts, rive your concealing continents and cry these continents, this whole world you've created for yourself, and cry these dreadful summoners grace. Ask for grace in the midst of all your wrongs. I'm a man more sinned against than sinning. Somebody describe Lear at this point. He is lamenting, saying, "Poor me." <laughs> yeah. Yes, K. Are, yeah, K. What's your response to Lear saying he is lamenting? Um, do you think it's not deserved? Or, I mean, that he's wrong to grieve. Um, and he says, after calling down the wrath on everybody for the hidden crimes that they, you know, have. I'm a man more sinned against than sinning. Is he a man more sinned against than sinning? Okay. Probably not. Probably? Not. <laughs> I, yeah. So, anybody want to step in? Describe Lear at this moment. What's happening? Particularly, remember the setting, the, the importance of setting for Shakespeare. Describe Lear with a setting in mind, the heat, the storm. Spiritually, he's in Dante's hell. Wow. Or he's being forced to recognize the depth of his situation and the world that he, I mean, because he was the king. So, this didn't, these people didn't come out of a vacuum. Wow. Wow. So he is fundamentally responsible. The buck stops with him. Hmm. So he's at the point of recognizing that. I, I don't know if he's, you know, at this point, if he's completely reached bottom, but he's getting there. Like yeah. he, we see him getting there, trying to wrestle with the depth of his own responsibility. Yeah, yeah. Anybody else want to? Well, and that's what makes me kind of mad is that 
he's saying, I need, I need you to have patience because I need to become accustomed to this giving away my kingdom. But then he doesn't allow them any time to become accustomed to what they have. He's hoping the whole world falls in on them. He's cursing his daughters. And so, and it makes me think about um, when older people have to go into like nursing homes or, and, you know, you start taking, yeah. telling your parents not to drive anymore or, you know, you're taking away their freedoms and wow. you don't give them wow. the opportunity to get used to that. Wow. I, I wish I had read this book and understood it, you know, 20 years ago yeah. when yeah, I had yeah, to go yeah, through yeah. this with yeah. my parents. You guys are amazing, truly amazing. A um, couple of things here. Let me, I mean, to to pick up with what Melody said. When we first feel the sting of injustice and respond with anger, I mean, this is a deep anger. He's, I mean, I I I have a sense that everybody understands it. At that moment, can you see your your own implication in it? In that moment of rage. Really, wow. My well here, argue with me then. I mean, somebody convince me other. I'm going to say, I mean, because Melody says she's really upset with him. I look at Lear like this, and to me, it is such an understandable thing that when somebody commits an injustice, small, it may irritate us. When somebody commits a large injustice, my own sense, it's certainly from myself or you know, knowing what I know about human nature. The most natural response is anger, and very often that anger blinds us. We're really angry, and we want, we want. Retribution. We want justice to be done. But any, I'm going to say, in any of those moments when that happens to us, how clear-sighted are we about the depths of our own sins? So, I mean, I agree with all you. The, the beauty of what Shakespeare's done here, as I read it, is, you know, um, when he says blow winds, he's calling down the wrath of the universe. This is so existential. He has lost everything. I mean, I, I think Heather's put it so well again and again. I mean, she says he's a king. You know, he's dispossessed. He's so he's gone. So he's gone from the height of things to the very depths. It's it's greater than Oedipus, who was a king. I mean, emotionally, we're feeling depths of things here we will never feel with Oedipus Rex, who was a pagan, you know, figure. This is a figure from the eyes of a Christian who knows spiritual depths. I thought. Um, Heather's taking us back to Dante's Divine Comedy was really good. But I think the natural response is anger when somebody does something wrong to us. And in that anger, we're blinded. So for me, when I, when I look at what Shakespeare's doing in this one section, you know, line 50, Act 3, Scene 2, let the great gods that keep their dreadful, that he's calling down the wrath. He's a king. The wrath is great. He's lost a great amount. And then to end it, close pent-up guilts, rive your concealing continents, the whole world you've created for yourself, and cry these dread that ask for grace. I'm a man more sinned against than sinning. God. He doesn't see his sins. I mean, he's still, I mean, at this point, he's so outraged that he's blaming everybody because, and not taking responsibility. And to me, it's, to me, this is so deeply human because of the depths of the pain he's suffering from. So Shakespeare's been taking us stage by stage through this change from, oh, reason not the need, 
blow winds. Let the great gods keep this dreadful putter. Um, close pen of guilts, rive your concealing continents and cry these dreadful summoners grace. I'm a man more sin. All you can feel is the weight of injustices in the world. What was Job's response when he lost everything? Oh, you're right, God. <laughs> he blamed God for everything. I mean, it, it took some real talking on God's part to get Job around. Anyway, let's let's stop here. I'm I. I'm so enjoying this. I I, I'm. You guys amaze me. I mean, your your comments are are just bringing out the depths of this play, and I'm really grateful for them. We're not going to finish Lear next week, um, unless one of you can perform a miracle. Um, I'm going to try to go through some of the major parts of Act 3 and 4, um, which means we're going to have to do 5 when we get back. I didn't want to do that, but um, I do not want to rush this. There's too much here. I hope everybody agrees with that, that you see that there's just a lot here to take time with. If you want me to finish this up, no, I'm not going to do it. Even if you do, I'm not going to. We're going to. We're going to have to extend this because you guys are. You guys are doing too good a job. I mean, the your comments are pretty amazing and right on. So, any last comments about Lear and where we are at this point? You know that when he goes to the hovel, that he's going to conduct a. There, here it is again. He's going to conduct a court of law. He's going to bring charges against his two daughters. He's going to go through a mock trial. He's going to bring his daughters to justice. This is really interesting. He wants justice. He has to bring it there in the hovel. What's going to follow that? His daughters are going to become these viciously, vicious creatures. You know, killing, wanting to murder the other. I'm going to here, let me point to two lines before we leave. Just to, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna ask for an answer, but next next week I will. Um, take a look. I set those two quotes, you know, by um, Cornwall and Albany next to each other. One of them supporting a man-made justice. He's gonna make justice what he wants. Think about that, because he he feels no burden of having to conform himself to God's law. St. Thomas said, truth is the conformity of our wills with truth. We have to conform ourselves to that. Our mind, we have to conform our minds to what is. The modern mind says, you conform yourself to me in my use of power. I'm gonna you're gonna have to do what I want you to do. That's what Cornwall is basically saying, yeah. I should take him to a court of law, but I'm not. And nobody nobody can stop me because I've got the power. You're gonna have to do what I want you to do. So justice is meant there is no sense in his part that there's an order in the world that he has to conform himself to. Yeah? Albany's view is very different. He sees justice working out of what happens in that scene between Cornwall and his servant. Yeah. Now turn for a moment to four, Act Four, Scene Four. I, I don't want to. I don't want to take this up. I just want to leave it because it's a contrast again. In Act Four, Scene Four, Cordelia gets news of what's happened to Lear, and she's crying. She's weeping. She's grieving over her father because she knows what's happening. He's going mad. 
Hack 4, Scene 4, Alack, tis he, why he was met, even now, as mad as the vexed sea, singing aloud, crowned with rank fumadier and furrow weeds, with, because you know he's got um, wreaths of flowers on his head. Everything about him gives the appearance of madness. One of the questions that I want to take up when we meet next week is, is there a, re- uh, this is very serious to me, is there a reason in madness? And I want to go back to what Melody said a minute ago because it was so good. When uh, we've got a friend who's just put in a <laughs> in a retirement home, and you should <laughs> hear his comments about his kids. And when he when the people there said, "How did you get here?" The over <laughs> everybody was in a hall together. There were a hundred people in the hall. Uniformly, there was this harmonious. Our kids put us here. <laughs> it was. It, it was sad, except that it was, I mean, it was funny, except that it was sad. But to go back to um, Melodies, because I, I, I just appreciate the honesty of it. You know, parents do this, and I wish I had known 20 years ago what I know now, the patience to, you know. So, um, Cordelia is aware, her, aware that her father's going mad. He's losing it. Is there a reason in madness? Now, hold on. I don't, want, I don't want to take this up until next week. Because according to the circumference of the circle, all the Reagan, Goneril, Edmund, right, Cornwall, they're all critical of Lear, and they think Lear has lost it. All of his daughters, both of his daughters have thought that from the beginning. So what they see is madness. Okay? So judged from the perspective of the circumference, anybody approaching that center, like Christ and the disciples, would think that they were mad. They didn't conform to their ways. The Sadducees, the um, Pharisees. Is everybody following me? Is there a reason in madness? Does something happen when you break free of the way of reasoning of the world and suddenly find yourself in a place where you don't know what to do? what's right or wrong, because you've been living according to those outward appearances all your life. Is everybody following? So that's one of the questions I want to take up. Is there a reason in madness? She says, why he was met even now as mad as the vexed sea, singing aloud, crowned with rank, fumiter and fur weeds, with hardocks, hemlock, nettles, cuckoo, flowers, darnel, and all the idle weeds that grow in our sustaining corn, a century send forth, search every acre of the high-grown field, and bring him to our eyes. She wants her dad there. She'll go on to say, line 12, the doctor looks, thinks, and he says, there's means, madam. Our foster nurse of nature is repose. Here's a scientist. A doctor says, what your dad needs is quiet. Think about the kids that Melody just mentioned a minute ago and the support they would get from physicians. Our foster nurse of nature is repose, the which he lacks, that to provoke in him are, are many simple operatives whose power will close the eye of anguish. If we just give him quiet time and give him pills, I hope everybody's here in the modern world. Shakespeare stuns me. Stuns me. Cordelia's response all blessed secrets, all you unpublished virtues of the earth, spring with my tears, be aidant and remi- remediate in the good man's distress. 
Seek, seek for him, lest his ungoverned rage dissolve the life that wants the means to lead it. Somebody, I don't want to now, somebody make clear Cordelia's mind and heart at this moment. Okay? Now set this against, so she says, "'Tis known before,' the, the message says, the, the British powers are coming. Remember, Cordelia's on the side of France now because she's the queen of France, she married the king. "'Tis known before our preparation stands in expectation of them. O dear father, it is thy business that I go about. Therefore, great France, my mourning and importune tears has pity. The king left. He had to go back. But he came here to support her. And she's grateful for that. No blown ambition doth our arms incite. But love, dear love, and our aged father's right. Soon may I hear and see him. She's queen. The king is returned. She's got a war in front of her. What's her concern? The war or her father? Just hold it. I don't want to answer it. Turn to um, Goneril's Act 5, Scene 1. Act 5, Scene 1, um, Line 15 or so. Um, Goneril has already sent a letter declaring her love to um, Edmund and asking that he kill her husband um, so Edmund and she can rule. So she's plotting the death of her husband and she will be glad to get her sister out of the way. Um, Act 5, Scene 1, Edmund, know of the Duke and his purpose hold, I mean, what's going on with um, Albany and the war. Reagan, now, sweet Lord, you know the goodness I intend upon you. Tell me but truly, but then speak the truth. Do you love my sister, Edmund? <laughs> In honored love. Is Edmund capable of loving either woman right now? I hope it's clear he's not. I mean, he's just, everything he does is for himself. She says, do you love, um, do you love my sister in honored love? But have you never found my brother's way to the forfended place? Have you been sexually intimate? That thought abuses you, Reagan. I am doubtful that you have been conjunct and bosomed with her as far as we call hers. Edmund, no, my honor, madam. They've not been sexually intimate. Reagan, I never shall endure her. Dear my lord, be not familiar with her. Stay away from my sister. Edmund, fear me not. She and the duke her husband. Goneril aside, I had rather lose the battle than that sister should loosen him and me. Put those two quotes together. Is everybody seeing the parallel? Cordelia is looking, the, a war is about to begin. She's got the battle for her country on one hand and her father. Here, Goneril has got the war and her envy of her sister on her. What's the difference between those two women in the way they deal with the situations they're in? Let me leave it there. Does everybody, does everybody follow the question? 
So two of the major questions um, next week are, where are we going? Is there a reason in madness? I really want to look closely at Lear and Gloucester on the heath together. And um, what's happening on the heath? What's happening to the people on the heath? What happens when they get removed from that world of wealth and comfort and power and ambition and, you know, all those things? Let me stop. Any last comments without going to those quotes that I just read? Any last comments about what we're doing or what Shakespeare's doing with Lear? Is this too heavy? <laughs> it doesn't get... the tra I don't know of, a, of another tragedy as... as as great. I, I don't know of a tragedy that deals with the cross or love more directly than this play. Because the cost is great. The human suffering is so great in this play. And, and it's all dealing with family relations, which brings it closer to home. So, um, Keep all of us in your prayers, would you please? including Suzanne and me. We will keep all of you in our prayers, all of you. Um, finish the reading. It's a beautiful play. It's an it, it gets us close to the cross and the beauty, the beauty of the cross that most people don't want to touch. It gets as close to the beauty of the cross as any play I know of. Okay. Okay, what happened to David? You tell that guy to get back here. Where is he? I've seen Elizabeth. Oh, I think they are going on, and I think yeah. I noticed Connie is gone. I yeah. think Connie. Yeah. Too. Yeah. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have been glib about that. Connie told me before class that she would leave early because they're they're doing an a uh, um an adoration tonight um for specifically what was it four K. The court case, the decision is going to be rendered tomorrow. On on a on abortion. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's the Mississippi uh, heartbeat bill. I think yeah. that's before the Supreme Court. Yeah. Can I ask all of you when you get offline, when you say your prayers tonight, to offer your support to the groups in adoration that. You um, spend a few minutes in prayer um, on that case, and um, okay, you've all been extraordinary. You, your responses tonight were amazing, and I'm grateful for the work we've done. So, you guys have a good week. Keep a joy in your heart. Keep a joy in your heart. Whatever's going on in this insane world of ours, um, okay. I'll see you all. We'll see each other next week. You guys have a good week. Thank Bye. you. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Melody, it's good to see you again. I think I got that in. Did you?